All right, well, welcome, everybody. Let me uh, kick us off with some prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for gathering us together in this place. Thank you for making us a people. Once we were not a people, but now we are. Thank you for calling us out of darkness and into light and into uh, your holy household. Thank you for um, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of this church. And thank you for this opportunity that we have to study and examine what it is that you uh, have designed the church to be and what our roles within it are. Help us, Father, to grow in our understanding, but also in our faithfulness. We want to know rightly who you are and what you want us to do, and we want to obey faithfully what it is that you're calling us to do. So be with us now, I pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, so um, we're now over the, over the hill of this class. There's 10 classes. We're in number six. And last week we talked about um, calling lived out in our families. This week we're going to talk about calling lived out in the church. Remember, calling is a station or a role, a duty. What is it that God um, wants us to do and be in the, in the different spheres of life, in our, in our work life, in our home life, uh, in our church life, in, in our broader life in society? We'll talk about that next week. Uh, the church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's marked by certain defining traits. Uh, faithful followers of Christ will be members of his church and obey his commandments therein. You all have um, handouts that are not great handouts. Sorry, I was in a kind of a rush, so I just deleted some of my points, and that's what you've got. So it's kind of messy, but you can get all 11 pages or so again after up on the site with the audio. Um, so the goal of today's lesson today is that we're going to examine uh, we're going to examine what it means to be called by God within the sphere of the church, and we want to better understand what a church is, what membership within it entails, and how to faithfully live out our vocation as followers of Christ in the midst of the flock uh, to which He's called us. So just to get us started, some questions: uh, How many of you in the room grew up in church? Long as you can remember. Most, okay. Uh, how many of you have been members for 10 years or less? Okay, five years or less? Sweet. Um, how many of you did not grow up in a Presbyterian church? All right. What are some of the backgrounds we're all coming in from? Non-denominational, so Baptist, right? No, I'm just, uh, I, I was born in Southern Baptist. Uh, what else? Those kind of the two? Lutheran. Lutheran? Okay. Church of Christ. Church of Christ. Assemblies of Halam. Yeah, I got it. Okay. Good. All right, awesome. Well, this will be, um, you know, everybody who is, goes through new members class here kind of gets an overview of Carriage Lane. This is going to maybe, maybe cover some of the same stuff, but what I wanted to do is kind of take a look at... Um, <coughs> at things through the lens of what it is that we're supposed to do. There's background we have to cover in order to do that, but um, this is a flyby. And I, my hope is that another quarter, maybe even this year, maybe next quarter, if I can find the teachers for it, um, I'd love for the church to be able to go through a more in-depth overview of Presbyterian polity. You know, what, what does it mean um, to be members of the church and, and what are the functions? How did Christ set up a government? What, what are we supposed to do day by day? And um, his ideal, not our ideal. We want to we want to follow after him and not make up our own way. All right. So, um, what is the Christian's calling inside the sphere of the church? When asked that question, people immediately translated in their heads by asking, "What are Christians who are called into the ministry supposed to do?" Right? When you hear calling in church, you're like, "Oh, okay, that's pastors." Um. But there's a difference between being a member of Christ's church and being an officer in it. All officers are members, but not all members are, members are officers. Uh, and all officers begin their service within the church as members. So we're going to study what it means to be a member. Uh, in fact, 
Paul actually requires this in 1 Timothy 3, 6 when he lists the qualifications for overseers and deacons. He says he uh, must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. So uh, no officer is going to ever rightly uh, be called and installed and ordained uh, and serve in the church in that office um, unless and until he's first been uh, a faithful member and, and the call has been evident uh, to the to the flock. So let's see. What do we mean by church? How does the Bible speak of it? The New Testament word for church is ecclesia. It's um, it's a compound of the preposition ek, meaning out of, and kaleo, meaning to call. And so together it just means the called out assembly or the congregation. Jesus is um, our great teacher. And he often used metaphors to convey different meanings and provide explanation to us so we could understand it, uh, understand things better. And so we want to look at some of the ways that he speaks of Christians and, and his church in Scripture. The first one, maybe, I think they're on your, your list. The bride of Christ as beloved and adorned. Mark uh, 2, 19 through 20 says, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So he's referring to himself here as the bridegroom. And then in Revelation 21, 1 through 3, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So there the church is referred to as the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. We're the bride. And Paul talks about that in Ephesians. when We, we covered the family um, you know, last week and we were talking about marriage and how that's actually it's a, it's a mystery, but that's a representation of Christ in the church, you know, a husband and a bride. So this is one way that he explains what the church is supposed to be. He also talks about it in terms of the body of Christ. Different members, but united under one head. So 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verses, I'm just reading 12 and 13 and 27. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Paul also says in Colossians 1, uh, 17 and 18, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So bride of Christ, body of Christ, talks about us as a flock and about Jesus as the good shepherd. Um, flocks are made up of sheep, which are vulnerable and very much in need of a shepherd. There's a bunch of verses in John chapter 10, uh, but I'll just look at chapter 11, I mean verse 11, which says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then these sheep are also guided by under-shepherds. So he's the good shepherd, big S, and then there are under-shepherds is the the way Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. So I'm just pulling out a couple verses there. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So, bride of Christ, body of Christ, flock. He's our good shepherd. We're the people of God. We're a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. We're also referred to as the household of God. So we're fellow citizens and members. In Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And we're also talked about as living stones in a spiritual house, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, lots of things. There are more. That's just a, there are other analogies and metaphors that are used in Scripture. But what do we learn from the way that Christ talks about us as the people that he died for and called together and wants to follow it after him? Uh, one thing that we learn is that Christians are not atomistic individuals, uh, just freely floating around in our own independent you know, world at our own personal whims. That's a bigger point than it may seem, because we live in a world that is hyper-individualistic. Um, we believe, you know, it's me, myself, and I, and uh, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I don't need nobody. You know, we're, we're so proud, as, as we talked about earlier in one of the lessons, how the military you know, used to have a slogan, uh, the army of one which is ridiculous because there's nothing that's, you know, one. Every, everything has, there's in hierarchy. They all have to work together. And that's the way that God made the world to be. Um, so, so we're not atomistic individuals, but rather we're members of a defined body in submission to Christ our head. And that's important too because another thing you'll find in this uh, environment of ours and in, in, our, in our culture that's so, you know, um, just hyper-individualistic, that's a good word, is people will naturally want to concoct in their own minds some definition of the church that allows them to be autonomous, that allows them to uh, come and go as I please. I don't really have to join. I don't have to be a member. I don't have to submit. I, I love Jesus. Me and him get the Bible. We go out on, you know, on, the, on the boat dock and, and just enjoy it, and it's so great, and that's how, I, that's how I meet him. That's how I get to know him. And those may be great times where you can enjoy some of the creation that God has created uh, for your enjoyment, you know, for his glory. Those, those are good things to do. But he does not call you to be an island, nor me. That is uh, anathema to um, the Christian doctrines and to, and to God himself. He made you in his image. And what is his image? It's a Trinitarian image. Christ forever and always has existed in some form of community, even with himself. And he intends for us to do the same. Uh, there's a training course that I um, am pulling from on some of this from uh, an OPC pastor who's passed. Uh, you've heard me reference him before, Greg Bonson. He was a seminary professor at Westminster and, um, and a pastor in the OPC. And he, he, this is just a, sort of a new members class, but he did a good job summarizing. I thought I'd just read this to you, um, the concept of church membership in this way. He says, Scripture tells us that from the earliest days of the church, people were added to a body of believers, that's in Acts 2, uh, a body distinguished from a larger social group, which uh, merely came into contact with the gospel preaching in Acts 5. This body of believers to whom converts were added was set apart from the general public by being called the household of faith, Galatians 6. It's precisely those who are members of this household who are legitimately recognized as voting for its officers, Acts 6, uh, participating in the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Utilizing the church court, Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 6. Being subject to its discipline, 1 Corinthians 5. And uniting as many members into one body of, and uniting as many members into one body of Christ, serving each other, 1 Corinthians 12. He asked the question, what is it that distinguished those who were members of the household of faith from other people? So, Jesus comes on the scene, uh, he preaches his gospel, some believe, some don't. There's wheat and tares. How did, how did people know who was a member of Christ's body of the church, the household of faith, and who wasn't? Because they were all intermingled there. In Jerusalem, they, they would meet in <clears throat> Solomon's portico, his porch there in the, uh, the temple courts. They, uh, how could you tell? They didn't have a building, you know, that first church of whatever. Uh, and so how is it that people were able to distinguish from Acts 2 and, and Hebrews 13, um, three things are pulled out. One, they were publicly recognized as professing faith in Christ. We talked about that in another earlier lesson, that the first um, confession of the early church was Christ is Lord, not Caesar. And, and so they were publicly recognized as professing faith in Christ. They were united in a lifestyle of self-sacrificial love for one another. Remember that's 
they sold their goods and they put everything was in common. Uh, they laid it before the apostles' feet for them to distribute to make sure that people had what they needed. They placed themselves under the shepherding discipline of the elders. That's one example. They laid their goods at the apostles' feet to let them put that out. Uh, when they had an issue, they'd come before them. That's why in Acts 6, he said, okay, there's, uh, you know, these, the, these widows, Hebrews versus Greeks, they, they think they're getting, not getting a fair shake. Go pick some deacons to help distribute things and do it fairly. And they were pleased with that. So they were publicly recognized as professing faith in Christ. They were united in a lifestyle of self-sacrificial love for each other. And they placed themselves under the shepherding discipline of the elders. This is what we mean today by church membership. The initial outward signs of joining with the body of Christ, the church, are public profession of faith in, in, in Christ and, and baptism. Uh, he says that despite clearing the clear teaching of Scripture, it's not unusual for people in our world, even church-going Christians, to subordinate the concept of church membership. So he says it this way. Accordingly, church is thought of and treated by most Americans as individualistic spectator sport. Uh, without commitments, without oversight, and without discipline. And you know that's true. I mean, scroll through your Facebook feed and just look at all the concerts that are going on this morning, right? Um, As a follower of Christ, effectually called unto Him, and given faith to believe and confess Him as Lord, what then is your vocation and mine, our our calling and our duty within the church? Well, there are six things we're going to look at today. Um, the first being, you need to become a member of a church. All right, we said that Scripture defines members of the church uh, through th- those three distinctive characteristics, profession of faith in Christ, sacrificial love for one another, and submitting to the government of the church. Well, that's what Scripture describes in the indicative, but what does it command in the imperative? Number one, profession of faith. Matthew 10.32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. If we want him to acknowledge us before the Father, we will acknowledge him before men. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If this, then that. No other way around it. So we're commanded um, to give a profession of faith in Christ. Love, service, and submission to one another. John 13, 34-35 says, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Ephesians 5, 15 and 21 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is distinct. This is not how your you know, people in your HOA or you know, folks at work, whatever. It's not how the world around you is going to... They don't love and sacrifice and serve one another uh, this way. And that's one of the ways that we're we're commanded, but that's also one of the ways that we're set apart. And then third, obedience to the leaders of Christ, of of the church, excuse me. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All right, so if the commands of... If the commands of Christ uh, that he requires are the commands represented in this inspired definition of what church membership means, then is church membership required? If all of the parts are required, is the whole required? Yes. Church membership is a moral obligation to Christians who are going to faithfully follow after Christ. Let me quickly note, because it will inevitably pop into heads, uh, church membership is normative, and it ought to be pursued by all who love and serve Christ. He said, if you love me, obey my commandments. But it is not a prerequisite for salvation. We have an inspired example of the thief on the cross. He never joined the church, but Jesus said, I will see you in paradise today. And he did. So um, so church membership, first thing to do, you need to become a member of the church. Um, here are the vows that we take at Carriage Lane. Number one, do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, except in his sovereign mercy? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ 
Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? And fifth, do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? These are the ways that we define or um, codify and, and put forward as vows to help define our church membership. So everyone who comes in and becomes a member of our church takes these vows before one another and before the Lord. So um, on the first point, you need to become a member of a church. What should you therefore do? You guys are already doing it, but you find a church that is faithful and true to Christ. You join that church, attend it regularly, serve within it, uphold your vows of membership, and worship God weekly on the Lord's Day in spirit and in truth. But that begs the question, what is a true church of Christ? Um, there are a lot of different organizations in the world, uh, some good, some bad, some that are Christian, even nominally, they'll profess Christianity. They put the, you know, you've got the, the ichthus, the little fish on their website, so you know they're, they're solid. Um, but there's only one church of Jesus Christ. Um, there are even so-called churches um, who would like to claim that name, but they don't meet the standards set forth in Scripture which define what a true church of Christ is. Um, there are marks of a church that are set forth in Scripture. It's not in a, in a neat and tidy list, but through study of Scripture you can see what is it that the inspired Word of God says, this will be representative of, my, of, of a church. Or what has Christ himself as the head of the church instituted and ordained um, and commanded for us to follow. There are... You know, coming out of the reform perspective, there are sort of three core. There are different ways to skin a cat. Some people will bury others inside one and three. Um, the nine marks church, you know, they've got nine. You know, they, 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 they break those out. Um, we, would, we, would talk, we would speak in terms of, of, of the core three from the reformed perspective, but uh, the class I'm pulling from here from Dr. Bonson, he, he adds two more. It's, we, we agree with them. Uh, it's just we, we normally bury them in one and three. So let me just read those to you. Um, number one, adherence to apostolic doctrine. And I've given you a bunch of verses there. You can see where that's represented. Number two, administration of the sacraments. We believe the sacraments to be baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we'll talk about that, the breaking of the bread. Um, not the, a much larger list that you would find you know, across the street. Um, and then church discipline. Those are the three... Three legs of the stool of a church. Uh, faithful adherence to apostolic doctrine. What did the apostles teach, which is what did Christ tell them to say and to teach? Administration of the sacraments. Those are the ordinances Christ set forth for us to follow after. So if you're not obeying Christ, you're not a part of his church. And then church discipline, <clears throat> that we would live in purity and harmony and in good order with one another. And that's even reflective, you know, from, no, that's obviously the New Testament church that we're talking about, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When he brought the Israelites out of Egypt... He saved them, brought them through the waters, and then gave to them the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and said, here's how I want you to know me, the first four, and then the following six say, here's how I want you to live with, you know, with one another. Be at peace with one another. Here's how, and <clears throat> church discipline allows us to, to have right doctrine, make sure we, we're not heretical, we understand God in the way that he wants us to do, and that we're living in peace and unity with one another as is reflective of those who would follow after him. Dr. Bonson adds just um, fourth and fifth element. He would say inwardly, with, you know, in our ranks, fellowship and worship towards God and mutual concern for his people. Uh, and some scriptures that would attest to that. And then outwardly, you know, our actions, service toward the world in evangelistic outreach, <clears throat> and then seeking transforming holiness in every area of life. So... Our whole class is on how do we, you know, conform our whole lives in every sphere to, uh, you know, uh, to match the lordship of Christ. So these are these are things that we agree as well. No church is perfect in these, but a true manifestation of Jesus uh, of Christ's church will display all of these marks to some degree, and it's our duty forever to work towards greater fidelity in each area. <clears throat> so, wrapping up on this part, some organizations have become so deficient or degenerate. Here's a warning. <clears throat> Some organizations have become so deficient or degenerate with respect to some of the above marks that they can no longer be deemed true manifestations of Christ's church on earth. From them, Christ removes their lampstand, Revelation 2.5, or they become 
uh, unwitting synagogues of Satan, Revelation 2.9. They do not correspond to the Jerusalem which is above that we hear in Galatians. Uh, they no longer qualify to be called the Church of Christ. The uh, pastors on uh, our Sunday evening services are going to be going, or Sam kicked it off last week, or whenever it was, going through the letters in, in Revelation. We'll, we'll be covering this. Here's the church. Good job. You're doing okay here, but I'm telling you, you got to fix this. Great job here, but you better fix this. <clears throat> and the warning that you can have your lampstand removed. Um, all right. So um, become a member of a church. Recognize what a true church is. You need to know, in order to do that, you need to know apostolic doctrine. Acts 2, 4 through, uh, excuse me, Acts 2, 41 through 42 says, So those who received the word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So Church of Christ is going to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Ephesians 2, uh, 19-21, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple unto the Lord. So the church is going to be built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Um, it matters very much. <laughs> you know, what, uh, what's the, you know, the shorter catechism? We said, chief in the man, glorify God, enjoy him forever. Well, what rule, question two, has God given us to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him forever? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule that we have which will tell us how to glorify and enjoy him forever. What did the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duties God requires of him. Why does that matter? Because orthodoxy precedes orthopraxy. Right thinking is a necessary requirement for right acting. So we want to make sure that what we believe is correct so that what we do follows from that because we do not want to disobey our Lord. All right. Um, so um, I'm gonna, just a confessional summary there before you. Um, there's a difference between confessing and professing. Uh, officers in the church are required to subscribe to our confession of faith. And our confession of faith would be the Westminster Standards. We believe that to be an apt and right summary of the doctrines contained within the scriptures. You'll hear people around the world today say, I, no creed but Christ. My only doctrine is Jesus. And that's, I get it. But it's not really functional, practical, helpful, or really honest. Uh, because if you were to ask them, all right, what are we supposed to do? How, do, how am I supposed to live in this world? If they were going to be true to that call, they would say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And it was gone void and and just read all the way through the end of Revelation because how are you, how are you, if you summarize anything, now all of a sudden you've broken your, your mantra. And so we think that um, God brought the gifts to men, apostles, evangelists, teachers, to be able to equip the saints for every good work. In order to do every good work, we need to know what it is we're supposed to do. And so um, we subscribe to the Westminster Standards as a summary of right doctrine. Um, our, the, the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, our book of uh, church order, uh, says that the Constitution is defined this way, our Constitution of our church. Um, the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America, which is subject to and subordinate to the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, the inerrant word of God, our Constitution consists of its doctrinal standards set forth in the Westminster Confession of Faith, together with the larger and shorter catechisms, and the Book of Church Order, comprising the form of government, the rules of discipline, and the directory of worship, or for worship. All is adopted by the church. So, um, for those of you who haven't, I mean, everybody here probably has, but just in case, um, what are the Westminster Standards? We said it there, the Confession, and then the larger and shorter catechism. So, um, the Confession of Faith, I would encourage you today, There's, I think there's a link in your notes to westminsterstandards.org. If you got the book, great. Read chapters 25 through 31. That's on the church and um, stuff that would be relevant for today if we're trying to figure out what our calling is inside the church. Read what uh, 
the confession says. There are 33 chapters in the confession. I'm just going to run the list because it's pertinent. Uh, of Holy Scripture, of God and of the Holy Trinity, of God's eternal decree, of creation, of providence, of the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof, of God's covenant with man, of Christ the mediator, of free will, of effectual calling, of justification, of adoption, of sanctification, of saving faith, of repentance unto life, of good works, of the perseverance of the saints, of assurance of grace and salvation, of the law of God, of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience, of religious worship and the Sabbath day, of lawful oaths and vows, of the civil magistrate, which we'll get to next week, of marriage and divorce, of the church, of the communion of saints, of the sacraments, of baptism, of the Lord's Supper, of church censures, of synods and councils, of the state of men after death and the resurrection of the dead, and of the last judgment. This is a great systematic overview of what Scripture teaches. Then you've got the larger and shorter um, question and answers in the larger. You've got five preliminary questions, and then a whole section from questions 6 through 90, what man ought to believe about God, and then from questions 91 through 196, what we ought to do about it, and the shorter is just a consolidated version of that. So what should you do to grow in your understanding of apostolic teaching? Because if Carriage Lane ever ceases to be faithful to the apostolic teaching found in the scriptures, you better bolt. But before you do, you better call the pastors to account. And you better hold up chapter and verse and say, what you said is not what is in this book. And we need to, we need to work through that. That's part of being a, a member of Christ's church. Um, you should have your, your book open. Listen to what the pastors are saying. Is it true? Do I believe it? Come talk to them. Come talk to any of your elders. Um, we want to make sure that we're all being faithful. Iron sharpens iron. So read your Bible. Pray for understanding. Read our confessional standards to gain a systematic understanding of what the Reformed Church views as orthodox doctrine. Uh, and sit under faithful preaching and teaching. Ask your elders if you have questions. That's one, two, and three. Number four, you need to understand the sacraments. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from the Westminster Confession because... Why would I try to summarize it any better than them? So in general, I'm just reading, um, this is from chapter 27 of the sacraments and a couple of the points um, therein. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him. As also to put a visible difference between those that belong into the church and the rest of the world and to solemnly engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. Signs and seals. Signs that point to a greater truth in Christ. Seals that have efficacious work within us. We don't believe... Well, we'll get to this. Um, there are only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel, that is to say baptism and the supper of the Lord, neither of which may be dispensed by any, uh, but by a minister of the word lawfully ordained. And in the notes that you'll, you, you can get later, it's got all the references. Baptism. Uh, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus. Matthew 28, our Great Commission. Uh, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace and of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, new birth, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life which sacrament is, by Christ's own appointment, to be continued in his church until the end of the world. Don't study it. Baptize, it wasn't just for the first century, it's now. You get a new little baby, sprinkle that, sprinkle that water on them, you know. Um, let's be faithful. Bring in a new convert, you know. Um, we want to baptize because Jesus Christ told us to, because that's how he wants us to be set apart. Is that how I would have picked? Thankfully, I'm not Jesus Christ. <laughs> Um, so it doesn't matter what I would have done. All right, although it be a... Eh, I'll just get this. Uh, the, then the Lord's Supper. Uh, our Lord Jesus, uh, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood, called the Lord's Supper, to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death, the sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties 
which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him, and with each other as members of his mystical body. When you, when you walk out into the world and, and tell people, I'm going to eat a cracker and some juice and or wine, depending on where you're at, because that represents a man who lived and died for me. And it's not just a symbol, but it somehow actually has spiritual efficacious work that makes me um, more faithful unto him, that fills me up, that helps me to be able to be more obedient, that strengthens me. That sounds asinine. <laughs> you know, that's crazy. But Jesus calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. And so if we're going to be obedient to him, it doesn't matter if you feel like it's kooky. Because, well, one, it's not. He gets to define what's kooky and not. But two, that's what he's, if he told you to walk on one foot and wear a purple shirt and jump on, you know, do it. Why would you not? He's, he's not a, uh, a malevolent dictator. He's the Savior who died for you and for me and lived for you. We need his active obedience as much as his passive. I can't just get my sins taken away. I need his righteousness or, or, or God won't hear my prayers. And so if he says this is good for me, we need to believe and obey. Uh, and then fifth, you need to practice church discipline. This is, um, we need to downshift and go through this just a little bit. Um, church discipline is, if, if baptism in the Lord's Supper seems crazy to the world, church discipline is bonkers. Um, but it's an important facet of what the true church is. In our, in our book of church order, part two, the rules of discipline are laid out in chapters 27 through 46. There's a recommended resource I, I wish everybody would read. Maybe we can, we won't make it required for membership, but should make it available. The Handbook of Church Dif- uh, Discipline by Jay Adams, a right and privilege of every church member. And it is that. It is a privilege. It is a blessing. It is a benefit. It is a grace. It is a love from Jesus Christ, the Savior who died for you that he set up church discipline because it's, well, we'll talk about what it does. Let me read a few little things on, um, on this from Dr. Adams. One, the, the, the idea of being a disciple, that word in the Latin, and, and discipline, those have a common root, and they have to do with education. I think I mentioned it the other week that discipline is not just, you know, cracking the whip, spanking, getting in trouble, rebuking, those kind of things. Discipline, in part, is um, proactive and it's instructive. I want to teach the standard in such a way that people grow to love the standard. And then when there's error, there's a reactive correction back to it. So train up to the standard in such a way that they would love it and want to imbibe it, and then correct back to it. If, if there's drift. And never in a... The goal of discipline is always restoration. You know what it's like when you sin. You think about this past week or this past month or whatever. I mean, you sin every day, but just think about one that hurt when you did what you knew you shouldn't have done. And what did it do? It brought you distance. Distant from God. Were you quick to pray or slow after you did that thing? Maybe it puts some gap between you and your spouse or your kids. Maybe you, you messed up, you felt it, you were mad at yourself, and you took it out on them. Right? Sin causes rifts. And what Jesus did was he brought about a ministry of reconciliation to bring us back into relation with him and with one another. And that's what church discipline allows us to do. That's always the goal. It's restoration. So, Dr. Adams says this way, discipling. I'm going to read a little bit about discipling, discipline, and then church discipline. Discipling. The word disciple, which means student, is clearly related to teaching. A disciple of Christ is a student of Christ. He's been chosen by him to sit at his feet and learn from him, Matthew 11. Jesus said that when a student is fully trained, he will be like his teacher, Luke uh, 640. And note, note carefully, he says, not just that he'll think like his teacher, but he will become like him in every way, including teaching. Um, others, are rec- other, others recognize this 
as true of Jesus' disciples in Acts 4. This is a, a side, I don't have it in my notes, but I think it's interesting in Psalm, in Psalm 1, where it talks about, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, as long as he meditates day and night. He does not, what is it, um, walk in the way of the wicked or sinners, stand in, I get it, I can't remember, walk in the way, stand in the, and then sit in the seat of the scoffers. Um, it's a progression. First I'm walking by, you know, you can't be out of the world, we're in the world, so you're going to be around filth and bad doctrine and sin. But he doesn't just keep walking, doesn't, you know, forcefully deny in his head and speak the truth or any of the correct and all that. He keep, instead of keeping walking, he then stops and listens and gives ear to it. And it transforms him, so much so that he's then later sitting in the seat of those same scoffers. He's got a place. Now he's scoffing at the next guy. He's become like his teacher. There's a progressive down spiral when we start dealing with sin and don't, don't flee. Disciple will be like his teacher. Uh, discipling involves both seeing and hearing. There's a bunch of verses here. Note that uh, this method has a theological base. It's not just mere apprenticeship. The son learned from his father by observing him and listening to him. All right, so that's discipling. Discipline in general. Discipline is also related to learning. When there is structure that comes through discipline, learning is possible. But where it is absent, learning is impossible. Remember your school days? You know, how many of your kids are in the middle of a place where there's stuff being thrown across? I hope nobody. Like, you see you know, fights going on, somebody just pushes them up against the... Are they learning anything that day or even in that... No. There has to be peace in order for learning to occur. Discipline brings peace. Peace and order are necessary for, for learning. Um, in many schools today, whether they're public or church or home, discipline is lacking. And consequently, learning suffers. As a father, God disciplines his children. And it's not because he's mean or cruel, but it's an act of love, Revelation 3.19. Um, these days, society in general, and individuals in particular, are undisciplined. I mean, feel, feel, feel the guilt on yourself for that. <laughs> um, I do. This accounts at least in part for the unrest that leads to so many other ills. Christian must not, Christians must not follow the world's way in this matter. Self-control is an essential element of good discipline. It's listed among the pieces of the Spirit's fruit in Galatians 5. All disciples must become disciplined in order to learn any new godly habit patterns. All right, so discipling, discipline, and then church discipline. Mark of the church here. The church at large has failed to exercise church discipline. It's just, it just has. Apart from church discipline, it's impossible to tell who is and who is not true to the faith. Church discipline draws the line between the world and the church. Jesus gave us the plan for exercising church discipline in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. I don't have time to read it right now, but um, we may neither depart from it nor devise one of our own. He promises to be present when discipline is properly exercised. Uh, you know, we say, uh, where two more are gathered, there I'm with you always. And we think, oh, that's so nice. My wife and I are driving down the car, and we, you know, we're talking about Jesus, and I know that he's with me. Or we're in our small group and we're studying, and isn't it neat? He's promised to be here. It's true, he's, ever, he's, omn he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. And he promised that in the Great Commission, I'll be with you all the way to the end of everything. But the thing we quote here is, is, the is in the midst of church discipline. Hey, deal, deal with this. Try to restore this person. It's going to be hard. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to hate every second of it, but know that I'm with you. It's a word of assurance that where discipline is carried on, he will be present working through the process. There are several stages that must be followed. First, when an offense separates believers, the one who is offended must go along to confront the offender. If they can straighten matters out, wonderful. That's the end of the matter. However, if the offender refuses to hear him, then the offended must go to him again, but this time accompanied by one or two others. Uh, part of that is just as a witness because the, in the justice of God, you can't condemn someone without multiple witnesses, one word against the other. But part of it is to help to, because discipline is always, to try and restore people. It's true. Okay, let me hear from others and ho hopefully that will restore the brother. But if they can't straighten matters out, uh, let's see. 
If they are also unsuccessful, then, then they become witnesses to explain and give evidence as to what happened when the matter formally comes before the church. First before the officers, 2 Thessalonians 3, and then if necessary before the whole body. If the offender will not hear the church, he must be put out of the church. He has rejected Christ's authority, which is ministered in church discipline. That's harsh. But that's what Jesus says is most loving to the offender and to the rest of the body and to the world who's going to see that and to Christ's own name. How shameful for us to live in such hypocrisy. We carry the name of Christ and yet we don't hold ourselves or one another accountable to live by his word. Hypocrites. Why would you put on his name? You've got to love him enough to follow after him, to take up your cross and to do whatever it is he says to do, whatever it is that he says to do. But because God is good, upon repentance, if it occurs, hope it does, then he must be restored, 2 Corinthians 2. At each stage, the goal is to honor God, to purify his church, and to restore the brother or sister through reconciliation. What moves the process ahead to a higher stage in each case is the failure of the brother to hear or to repent. And that's it. Excommunication is not... Uh, he's not tithing as much as he should, or you know, you know, like, or uh, some sexual perversion, or sin. it's not any particular. The only reason for excommunication is ever unrepentance. Any sin can get you into it, but the only reason that kicks you out is refuse to repent. Scripture was blatantly shown to them. They said, "I don't care. I'm not changing." Cast out. That's five. Number six. Last thing. You need to serve one another in the church. And this is how this is lived out. Discipline, you know, exists because we're sinners and Christ deserves a pure bride and God the Father promised that he would give him one. But so much of it is settled way down, you know, or early, early upstream, that's what I should say, upstream, before anything gets to a head. Um, through the service, the faithful service of one another. There's two groups of people that you have different obligations to in the church. We've already mentioned officers from Hebrews 13. Obey them. Not if they're, not if they're dictating you something that's contrary to God. No, then you hold them accountable. Take them before the session, before the presbytery, before the higher courts. But to the degree that they are being faithful and saying, all right, this is what we need to do. We're going to teach this. We're going to do this as a church. Then obey them. But the bulk of your interactions are going to be with your brethren and sistren. Um, and so how uh, are you to serve one another, fellow members? How do you to treat all members of the body? Well, in the New Testament, there are 59 what we call one another passages. These are found through tracking instances of the Greek word uh, alelon, which means one another, each other, mutually, reciprocally. It occurs like 100 times, but 59 of them are written as imperatives, as commands. Uh, some are repeated multiple times, like uh, love one another is a dozen plus times. I'm going to read to you uh, just quickly the list, and then we'll pray and leave. But I want you to listen as I do as to what it is that God says you're supposed to do to one another and what you're not supposed to do. There's, there's positives and negatives. This is how God wants us to live and act in the midst of his body, the bride of Christ. This is how he's pleased with us living out our vocations in this sphere of the church. Be at peace with one another. Mark 9:50. Wash one another's feet. John 13:14. Love one another. John 13. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans 12. Honor one another above yourselves. Also Romans 12. I'll skip, the, I'll skip the citing. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another. Then just as Christ has accepted you. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Or a handshake in our culture. Please don't kiss me. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. We have a, a cookie and whatever celebration for the new inner pastor. Maybe you guys could help 
the young'uns to wait for one another <laughs> instead of jumping over chairs and stuff to try and get the sweeties. Um, have equal concern for each other. Serve one another in love. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Carry one another's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider one another better than yourselves. Do not lie to one another. Bear with one another. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Teach and admonish one another. Make your love increase and overflow for one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Do not slander one another. Do not grumble against one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Live in harmony with one another. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each should use whatever gift he has received to serve one another. And clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Let me pray for us. Father, please continue your good work that you've begun, as we know you will, to make us more like Christ. We want to live out these commands. We want to love one another as you've called us to do so. Because we do love one another, you've given us love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But for the sake of Christ, for our Savior, for the one who loved us so much that while we hated him and rebelled against him, he died for us. He lived and died for us. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus. You didn't waver from the standard when you were tired. You didn't waver when people mocked you. You didn't waver when you were lied about, when you were pressured. You were faithful every day and in every way. And you did that for us. And then as you were nailed up on the cross <clears throat> by people who did not deserve to be in your presence, you could have called down the angels of heaven to come and vindicate you, to take you off that thing, to glorify you as they rightly should. And bomb after bomb after bomb of evil was being cast upon you and you stayed for our behalf. You had our face in mind. Thank you for that. Please forgive us for drifting. Please forgive us for forgetting that. Please forgive us for being flippant in our faith, in our membership within your body. Help us, God, to grow into maturity so that we can be glorifying to you and so that we can enjoy you fully forever. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.